Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivaglani, and today I'm delighted to welcome Gurdain Bhutani to Raise the Line. He's the co-founder and managing partner of MBX Capital, a venture capital partnership focused on emerging companies pursuing critical challenges in public health, including vaccine development, health system infrastructure, and disease surveillance, among many others. Previously, Gordain was the COO of FundRx, a healthcare and life sciences investment marketplace, and worked with private equity and corporate clients at Bain & Company and in public finance at Morgan Stanley. He has been an instructor on healthcare finance at the Cleveland Clinic Learner College of Medicine and guest lecturer in the Warden School's healthcare management program. He's also a personal friend, as I first met Gordain probably half a decade ago in New York, and he and another friend of ours, Zishan Mohammadi, his partner at FunderX and now MBX Capital, were early investors in Osmosis back when we probably had less than 100,000 registered users, and now we have over 3 million. So I'm personally grateful for him believing in us from an early time, and it's been exciting to see how he's grown the fund since then. So Gurdain, welcome to Raise Line. Well, thanks so much, Shiv, and, and right back at you, man. You know, I, I actually still have all of the Osmosis swag on my desk right now, <laughs> uh, and it was really a pleasure to work with you as an investor. I think we, we learned so much from you in terms of how you built uh, the company and the community around Osmosis, which I think is so powerful and continues to be a really incredible resource uh, for learners today. Thanks so much. And uh, if, if you have all the swag on your desk, I, I don't know how you have any space for a laptop or anything <laughs> else, because I know we've said a lot of the swag over the years. So obviously, I gave quite a quite a bio intro for you, but we like to ask our guests in their own words to describe some of their career highlights and what got you interested in investing in health companies to start. Yeah. So look, I think it's it's truly a privilege to get to work in and around healthcare. I studied healthcare policy in undergrad, and I was particularly motivated, you know, by by comparative health systems work. Right. So I grew up between India and the United States. Uh, it was always fascinating to me to understand, you know, how, how do societies think about delivering care to those that need it most, and what what are societies sort of capable of and, and governments capable of in doing that. And so through that experience, sort of spawned this interest in healthcare for me. I started my career out of undergrad as a musician. Very briefly, I realized it's uh, I didn't have the talent to survive in in the New York music scene, and so ultimately went and got you know quote unquote a real job at at Bain and Company, and I learned a ton at Bain, but knew I wanted to ultimately leave to build something in healthcare, uh, and that led to the formation of FundRx. And the goal with FundRx was really to catalyze innovation that was coming out of some of the greatest labs in universities around the country that. You know, historically would get stuck in the kind of arcane tech transfer processes that many of these institutions have. So the opportunity set for scientist-led companies in 2015 when we started FundRx was there was a handful of very large venture funds that they could work with that would essentially buy their IP and build their companies for them. And so it was very challenging as a scientist if you wanted to leave your institution and go and start your own enterprise to go and do that. And so where we tried to focus at FundRx was how can we get great innovation that would otherwise be trapped in academia, you know, out into a commercial setting where hopefully it can reach patients more quickly. And so we did that over the course of, of several years there and then ultimately launched MBX Capital, where we have scaled our ability to invest in companies going after big public health challenges. Yeah, it's been quite quite an amazing journey. And before we get into MBX, one of the things that was unique about FundRx, at least from the perspective I was sitting in as a entrepreneur founder was this community that you built of many physicians, including, you know, we had Veronica Diaz, orthopedic surgeon, 
and Jordan Grable, a neurosurgeon, both in Florida, who were early investors and advisors in Osmosis through FundRx. Do you want to comment a bit about that? Because many of our yeah. many of our audience are current or future healthcare professionals, some of whom are looking to diversify their asset classes as well. And certainly through FundRx, many of them have. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's a great point. So, so one of the things that we identified early on in, in building FundRx was that many investors would run into a lot of difficulty investing in healthcare companies and in life sciences companies because the level of domain knowledge that's required to make investments in this space is incredibly high. And, and frankly, even if you are yourself a domain expert, you likely know a heck of a lot about the area of healthcare or biotech that you work in yourself. But you know other segments of, of, of the industry may be opaque to you due to the complexity of, of this field. And so the idea we had at FundRx was if we build a community of like-minded domain experts, physicians, scientists, who themselves know a ton about their own area of, of this industry, they could collaborate with us in order to identify really high quality companies and support those companies effectively. And so you know, the thread here is, you know, of course, let's help people invest in what they know, but do it in collaboration with other people that also know enough about a segment of the business to be really high value. Yeah, it's a, definitely an awesome strategy. And again, one empirically that we benefited from at Osmosis. So let's get into MBX. So talk about maybe the fund and what your main theses are, like from a macro perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So at MBX Capital, we invest in early stage companies focused on big public health problems. We are fairly agnostic to how a company goes after a particular public health challenge. So our portfolio includes companies that are services companies, software companies, biotech companies, life science tools companies. But the unifying theme across our portfolio is that whatever a company is building can make a population level health impact. And for us, that means that what they're doing is going to lead to innovation that is ultimately accessible to huge portions of the global population. So when we think about the areas within that sort of lens that we should focus on, we try to apply this framework of looking at disease areas that are large in their burden, but on a relative basis underfunded. So for instance, if you look at where biotech venture capital dollars go in general, the majority of those dollars end up in immuno-oncology companies. Now, that's not to say that's not an important area. It absolutely is. But on a relative basis to the disease burden, it's actually overfunded. On the other hand, cardiometabolic disorders are underfunded on a relative basis. And so that's an area that we want to spend more time in. So we're trying to look, you know, as we think about what can an investor do to be as useful as possible, I think it's ultimately a, a question of focusing on those problem sets that actually really need your capital today. And so we, we try to apply that as much as possible. Now, thematically, with, with those lenses in mind, there's a few areas that we're excited about right now. One is the field of the exposome. So the idea here is, you know, we have great tools to understand our genetics today. We have, frankly, relatively mediocre tools to understand our environmental exposures over our lifetime and the effect of those exposures on our biology and, our, and on our health. And in fact, the majority of disease pathogenesis today is environmental in nature, not genetic. So we're looking at tools companies that are, are developing, you know, essentially exposomic sequencing technologies that help us better understand these environmental exposures. The second area for, of interest for us is, is biosecurity and, and biodefense. Um, I think the pandemic's revealed uh, to all of us how important that is. 
And certainly as we enter an era of more multipolarity, we do think you know, bio threats will become something that we need to be very mindful of. And so there's a lot of interest in the defense space around making sure that we protect ourselves from biological threats. And then finally, the, the third area for us that's most important is healthcare infrastructure. We see providers getting burned out all the time by the immense amount of administrative load that they have to carry today. And we want to invest in companies that are enabling our providers to spend their time you know, doing the work that they love doing and are great at doing and spend less of their time on things that you know, aren't necessarily the most engaging for them. Yeah, those are some obviously incredible themes and I think safe bets, I think for, well, they're obviously what society needs, but also hopefully safe bets for your limited partners, investors, and, and the founders that you're backing. Because certainly just on the expo zone, we know, you know, the way climate change is going and just wildfires and pollution, all these different things. There's a lot more public interest in this space, even though I think a lot of our audience probably have not heard that term before expo zone, which I think is pretty cool how you guys are creating or helping create this category. So let's let's dive into a couple of specific companies, you know, maybe within sure. each of three of those things you've invested in that you're really proud of or excited about uh, within those categories or other categories. Yeah. So there's over 50,000 chemicals in use in the United States that have been grandfathered in to our existing regulatory regime. So new new chemical products, pesticides, etc., you have to go through an EPA process in order to be approved and ultimately used in, in this country. But there's a huge number of chemicals that you know are legacy chemicals that in some format are, are still in use today that really have never had in-depth toxicological testing. And as a result of that, we're exposing ourselves to potentially hazardous compounds all the time. We, we, we just don't know what's necessarily having the biggest impact. And, and the problem with the, the typical chemical testing paradigm is that you have to perform animal experiments to understand the toxicological effect of a particular chemical. And at that level of scale, it's just not feasible. It, it would require a huge amount of capital, time, you know, number of animals, et cetera. And it's just sort of not a realistic thing to do. So, so one of the companies that we've most recently invested in is a company called Vivadine, which is a spin out from the University of Pennsylvania. And they're developing uh, high throughput human relevant tissue models that can be used for a wide variety of purposes, one of which is testing environmental contaminants and environmental chemicals. And you can do this on a tissue level scale in models that are more relevant to humans than a typical animal model might be. And so the power of this is that hopefully we'll be able to not only better understand what our existing chemical exposures are, but as new chemicals are developed, to do that in a more safe, safe and effective way. And of course, this has applications in drug discovery as well. So that's one that we're really excited about within the theme of the exposome. Yeah, fascinating. That's that's uh, amazing to look at. And part of what I'm hoping the audience gets out of you know having someone like you on the podcast is many of them are interested not only in maybe potentially wearing the operator hats and joining companies or investor hats and, and healthcare VC, but you know just things for their patients, things for their families to be aware of. So as, as potential users, beta testers of the product, and I'm sure a lot of the companies I know you've invested in, including ours, have had chief medical officers or other medical personnel who become directors. And so looking at your portfolio, you know, hopefully they get some interesting ideas. How about two other examples from maybe yeah. healthcare infrastructure as well? Absolutely. So on the healthcare infrastructure side, you know, a company that we're really excited to work with and, and, and have been very lucky to work with is a company called CareRev. And CareRev is, is building what I think will become, uh, and in many ways already is, the, the de facto platform for nurses to find uh, jobs within health systems that compensate them fairly, 
that give them flexibility over their schedule and ultimately give them a community that is really high value to them as well. And the way that CareRev approaches this is, is they partner with health systems in order to create a, a marketplace of, of jobs for nursing staff based on their particular skills. So, you know, a nurse that, for instance, is, is really great in the ICU, can find shifts that are appropriate for them. Someone that might be wanting to work on the med surge floor can do that as well. So there's a lot of this sort of like high skill type of opportunities, but at the same time, nurses have the ability to control their schedules, pick the shifts that they want to work. And, and for those shifts that, you know, perhaps are harder to fill, right? Friday night, uh, overnight shifts, right? Um, they can get compensated more fairly, you know, as well. And, and so that's one that I think is really helping health systems on the one hand, ensure that they have great patient to, to provider ratios at all times, which has been a challenge throughout the pandemic and, and afterwards, as well as giving providers a way to work that is more flexible and, and engaging to them. Yeah. Another company on the health infrastructure side that we're, we're really lucky to work with is called Eva Technologies. This is a company based in Mexico City. And they're building a, a radiology pack system and limb system specifically focused on emerging markets around the world. The challenge that we've seen in emerging markets is that a lot of the Gen 1 healthcare technology that's in use in you know, the United States and Europe isn't really a great fit for, for these regions. So it's simple things like, you know, if you, if you want to go put a Philips system in, right, it has to be on-premise. It's going to be really expensive. It's not going to be cloud-based or the pricing won't be affordable for the vast majority of, of the region. You know, it's also going to be built in a way that's compliant with the U.S. regulatory environment. Right? So as an example, in Mexico, many patients like to interact over WhatsApp instead of email. Through the EVA system, you can send a report to a patient via WhatsApp. You could never imagine doing that in the U.S., but it's super high value in, in that region. And so they've quickly become one of the biggest providers of PAC software in the region and are growing really quickly. Yeah, super interesting. Very cool uh, example of, I think, translational, you know, how, how something developed in the you know, U.S. or Europe needs, you know, kind of this layer of translation or localization to reach as many exactly. people as possible. Exactly. So... One thing I've really enjoyed is you started writing a lot more about your views on the healthcare system, on investing. You know, talk us through some of the content you're producing, like why you're producing this content, and also maybe some of the hottest takes you've you've had that could be interesting. Uh, that maybe got a lot of reactions from from people, positive sure. or negative. Yeah. So, you, you know, I made a, a comment recently that you know, ninety nine percent of consumer health companies out there. Uh, are just shuffling the cards and not really making structural improvements to the healthcare system. And you know what I really meant by this was that if you look at a lot of what's happened in the the healthcare venture world over the last few years, it's a lot of you know let's build a nicer looking doctor's office with you know fancy furniture. Let's create an easy to use app that you know looks looks nice and is simple. And let's get our doctors available to patients over Zoom. And by the way, we'll tack on a membership. So, you know, patients can spend a little bit more time with their doctors as a result of that. And yes, this patient experience is absolutely better. You know, personally, uh, I had a great experience with a physician at One Medical, right? And I don't mean to specifically call them out. There's a lot of companies doing this. But at the end of the day, is that really a structural improvement to the health healthcare system that goes after some of the biggest root cause problems that we have? I would argue that it's not. I think if you look at sort of some of the biggest root cause issues that we have, it's that we have a provider shortage, both physician level and nurse level. Those providers are increasingly dissatisfied with the way they are forced to work in our healthcare system. And they are the most important people in the system. Without them, right, we have we have massive challenges. 
The second sort of biggest, you know, sort of root cause problem I see is that it patients often don't have access to really high quality care. Um, so the way that many of these companies are solving the time spent with physician, physician problem is they are tacking on these membership fees, which enables someone to you know have a 30 minute visit instead of a 15 minute visit. The problem is the number of patients you can serve in that environment is naturally going to be smaller. There's still only one provider. Um, and, and so at the end of the day, I think what we need to be able to do is how can you enable one provider to actually serve more patients, but do so by taking away the administrative labor and a lot of the other time that's being spent on non-clinical activities. And so we're really excited to, to, to partner with companies that are working on those kinds of problems that are sort of going to make these big structural changes versus ones that are focused on the patient experience, which is, it's not that it's not important. I, I just don't see it having a generational impact on how people receive care. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. What was, what was the response to that post? I'm curious. You know, what was interesting was that a lot of people in companies focused on patient experience, I think actually really, it really resonated with them and really agreed. I think there there is a recognition that this is you know, that that's sort of true, even by folks that are working in that field. And we've actually backed some companies, right, that are focused on experience, you know, ourselves. So I think people are are awake to this. And I think then what I'm excited about is I think the next few years of health tech are going to be really focused on these structural problems. Because I think what people have realized is that actually, even on a, on a purely economic basis, just improving patient experience is not enough to produce great financial outcomes. And really, if you're thinking about it from a purely capitalist lens, the structural improvements are the ones that will, I think, be the best investments. Yeah, no, it's super interesting. I mean, there's so many parallels between the healthcare system and the education system where you know, we've seen universities, traditional brick and mortar universities, sort of add on different programs, add on different you know, amenities, add more administrators. And as a result, all this, you know, maybe the student experience is better because they can do X, Y, Z. They have yes. a world-class gym. They have people flown in, they go to Italy for study abroad, all these bells and whistles, which are, again, are, are good for the student and the faculty experience, but they tend to increase costs. Yes. And so the structurally different educational systems have gotten a lot of traction of, you know, it's a vocational training program where it's, you know, flipped classroom, it's online learning. So similarly, it seems, I think your prediction is hopefully going to be one that pans out. Um, I, I hope so. I, what, what you're saying resonates with me so completely. I, I, I went to Duke for undergrad, and I remember visiting about five years after I graduated. And I went to go get a meal in the dining hall. And that day, Mario Batali was preparing food for the <laughs> students, which blew my mind. On the one hand, I can see how if you're a student there, you know, that seems really cool. Uh, on the other hand, I would probably much prefer tuition dollars get spent you know, on enabling larger financial aid pools and a larger student body so that more people can receive the world-class education that they offer rather than, you know, amenities like that. So it completely resonates with me. Totally. Yeah. And I know you're also a fan of, I'm sure, I don't know if you're a fan of, but you, you've heard of Scott Galloway, the big dog. Yes. He, he speaks a lot about how these universities have, have just become luxury brands, essentially, as opposed to, you know, trying to educate as many people with world-class education, which is why Khan Academy and these other companies have, have, have started. And, and osmosis. And osmosis, right? yeah. Uh... <laughs> Thanks. Um, so, so I'm curious too, because, you know, you're so, one thing I love about talking to investors who are also operators and, you know, your academic in nature, you, you, I mentioned some of the universities you're affiliated with, is a lot of your job is making a few right decisions every year. And those decisions rely on research, a great yes. in-depth research. 
like literature reviews basically and, and then on the ground talking to customers talking to founders and teammates so i'm curious like one of the biggest trends obviously in the last couple of months is generative ai large language models what is your yeah. take on this i'm sure you're going to be writing something about this soon if you haven't already i think i'm going to wait to write something about this because i think the next six months are going to be really interesting and the rate of change is so fast that i think anything i, I say today or write today will probably be wrong in, in a few months one thing that I hope I won't be wrong about, and the way that we're thinking about the field, is ultimately that you know we believe data generators will be the organizations that create the most value. So if you look at a large language model in general, the quality of that model is a function of the data that it's trained on. Uh, and if you look at sort of the evolution from GPT three to GPT four, you know there was I, th I think almost thousand fold increase in the number in the size of the training set that they use and it got better but you know the rate of the rate of improvement slows down at some point what's interesting i think is that these models are are i think generally going to be open and available and integratable right you can engage with you know apis to to leverage some of these world class models created by you know companies like openai or google's bard and and so forth but they're not trained in a way that is purpose built for a particular use case so i think in healthcare specifically People that are producing proprietary data and can leverage these models off the shelf to uh, train them on that data that's proprietary, I think can create a ton of value. And so where we're spending our time is, okay, what, what kinds of businesses can create net new data lakes and, and as a result benefit from, I think, the revolution that's happening right now in AI? Yeah, I think that's a, it's a great take. And, and just being also vertically like specialized, right? Because some of these generic LLMs, you know, if you can train it with the right vertical data sets and get the right, you know, get enough throughput from, hum you know, actual humans giving feedback on that, on those outputs. So you're training at scale. Um, that seems, that seems to be the consensus view around where, where the value is going to be created since there's a thousand new AI type startups every month that are being generated and coming out. I think that's right. I'm sure you're being pitched with a lot by a number of them. So we've invested in a few. Yeah. Oh, cool. Awesome. I'm excited to watch that space. You know, going back to, you mentioned theme two is the biosecurity. And the reason we even launched this podcast three years ago now, call it raised line is because of the pandemic. And not yep. many people talk about COVID at this point, uh, which is a good thing. It means, you know, we've, we've gone past it, but we know there'll be another pandemic in the coming decades. So yep. I'm curious, what are some of the core lessons you think we've learned from COVID, one or two or three, whatever you want to share, that you hope or you believe will stick with us moving forward? So one lesson for me is, you know, I think it's actually, it's really easy to look back on 2020 and 2021 with sort of a critical eye. But, you know, I think with the wisdom of where we are now, if, if I look back on that period, I actually feel quite optimistic in the sense that and healthcare providers really stepped up. The biotech industry really stepped up. You know, sort of the pace at which a vaccine was developed, the pace at which we were able to launch a, a, a clinical response to the pandemic was pretty incredible. You know, I don't think you could imagine that happening in any prior decade. And so I think that actually gives me a lot of optimism that, you know, we can we can hopefully do that again. We can hopefully rise to the occasion as a society. Now, of course, it's not without its conflict. <laughs> there was tons of conflict, tons of, you know, things to to to, to be learned. I think one of them is that if we chronically underinvest in our public health infrastructure, that will have real consequences for all of us. You know, it's really easy to say, I really just focus on my my local community 
and making sure we have a really great hospital in my backyard. And, you know, if the hospital 50 miles away or 100 miles away or in another state is not so good, that's okay. Or the public health infrastructure in that state is not, is not so good, that's okay. And I think what we learned is that actually it's a big problem for everyone when we make that kind of chronic underinvestment. And so what I hope is, uh, I hope will happen is that we, as a society, recognize that this is a area that is worthy of significant investment. If you think of it really as a defense investment, right? Why is this not a big chunk of our defense budget? You know, if you, if you think about the dollars we're spending on physical defense, you know, I think we we ought to be spending meaningful dollars on biodefense uh, as well. Um, so I think for me, that's that's probably the biggest lesson. Yeah, I I agree. I agree with that, and that echoes what some other public health experts, like Ashish Jha, we had on the podcast have, have mm-hmm. said too. Um, but I like your optimistic take as well. I think we tend to be very negative about everything looking back and, you know, why did we make this decision or that decision? But, you know, it's very hard to remember how, how scary things were three years ago. And, you know, it is. Yeah. I mean, looking back on the big, the first month, right, the number of errors that were made in communication, et cetera, right. At, you know, at the time with the information that, that we all had, you know, everything seemed reasonable. Right. And so I think, you know, uh, I, I don't want to be too negative on that period because I, I think there were a lot of people working super hard to, to get us to the other side. Yeah, totally. Well, I know we're coming up on time, so I did want to share just two last questions. Sure. Um, the first is, you know, you even mentioned your career began as a musician. Yeah. And I know Zishan, too, was running like, a, you know, music venues right. back in the day, too. So I think you guys were united by that shared love. But now you're investing in category-defining companies and health healthcare technology. So your career has kind of evolved over, over time. What advice would you give to our audience, many of whom are also approaching their careers early on, about uh, just just that process of meeting the challenges of the the coming decade. Yeah. So, you know, I think the big lesson for me working in healthcare is that it's really important for all of us to mind our incentives. So, as an investor, I have tons of financial incentives by nature of my job that ultimately impact how I think about you know in, in companies, and that's often implicit, right? Everyone has these implicit incentives, right? That sort of float around in the back of their mind and are easy to kind of ignore or rationalize, but ultimately may lead to decisions that, you know, could be problematic in the future. And so one of the things that, you know, we try to do at MBX is to be really transparent and really reflective about what those hidden incentives that we have might be. And then as we make decisions on what kinds of companies that we work with or how we invest in companies, to be mindful of those. And I think the reality of our healthcare system, which is one where money is involved in it, you know, whether we like it or not, is that every single person in the healthcare system is going to have some of those hidden incentives that they need to be mindful of. I think if we all do that and make a best efforts sort of try at doing that, that will ultimately lead to better clinical care and better outcomes for everyone that, you know, uses the health, uses the healthcare system. And so that's probably the the one thing that, you know, I've learned over the course of the last 10 years that, you know, I think when I go to sleep at night is something that I I think about when I wake up in the morning, it's something I think about and and ultimately makes my day better because I I get to, it helps me ensure that I'm working in problems that really matter. And that's great. That's great advice. It's pretty unique. I don't think anybody on the podcast so far has mentioned that specific thing, just knowledge and transparency around incentives. And I'd, I'd build upon that by sharing, you know, obviously the quote from Charlie Munger, show me the incentives, I'll show you the outcome. Yes. When he looks at any organization. But also, I, I know you're 
likely also a fan of uh, Naval Ravikant, the Angelus yep. guy, and probably read this book, The Almanac of Naval Ravikant. And he specifically talks about knowing your internal incentives where uh, I think a lot of people, they don't know the reasons they're doing X, Y, Z, whether it's finishing their medical degree or starting a company or deciding to move to a certain place. Because a lot of these incentives we have or desires in his language are hidden and they're created by society or parents or some other group. Yes. And if you don't take the time to really reflect and think about those, even just personal incentives, not forget an organization, that's that's Absolutely. even more complex, but your personal incentives and desires, which we know for a lot of our students affects what type especially they choose, right? If you have $200,000 of debt, you've got to choose a higher paying specialty. So that, that, that obviously that's a more obvious example. But there's a lot of other examples, prestige, what my parents want, you know, those kind of things that the, the sooner people can better understand their thought processes around their own incentives or desires, I think the, the better for them. I think it's a great generalization of it. I, I completely agree with that. So thanks. Thanks for bringing that up. Again, we've had over 350 guests and I think you're the first to talk about that particular thing. Awesome. My last question, anything else you want to bring up to our audience about you, MBX, healthcare that, that we haven't talked about? All I would say is that, you know, if, if you're someone out there thinking about starting a company that's going to make a big impact to public health, our, our doors are open. Reach out to us. We're always excited to work with people um, that care about the problems that we do. And it doesn't matter if, if you've even formed the company yet. Uh, come and find us. We'd love to talk to you. Awesome. Well, I, re I highly recommend that too and echo that because, you know, I've lived through having Gurdain and Zeeshan as investors and advisors and friends. So uh, hopefully many of the people listening will at least take his advice and add him on LinkedIn. He has great hot takes and not so hot takes that are exciting to listen to. So Gurdain, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us on Raise Line and share your wisdom. And again, for helping Osmosis become the success it did. Thanks. Thanks so much, Shiv, for having me on. Really lucky to, uh, to have gotten to work with you through Osmosis. Awesome. And with that, I'm Shiv Uglani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Thank you.